Please rise in body or spirit for our call to worship. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. seated. Grace and peace to you this Lord's Day, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of you worshiping here in the sanctuary and everyone worshiping at home as well. We are glad and grateful to gather in the name of Jesus Christ, and because it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we have gathered, all are welcome. There are no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to the welcome when it is extended in the name of Jesus Christ. 
I'd like to invite everyone to a brief time of fellowship on our 21st Street sidewalk following the conclusion of this service, following the postlude. You may simply exit the sanctuary by this door to my right and follow down the ramp, and you will see there that our deacons have prepared some coffee and lemonade and cookies, but most importantly, the opportunity for us to engage with one another face-to-face -face following the conclusion of this service. Uh, our congregation, our session, has taken the action to, uh, to uh, attach our protocols to those of the city, more or less. And so I remind everyone that we are under mask protocol, so please do wear your masks. Your worship leaders only remove them when we are speaking, and that is out of deference to those with hearing loss. I'd like to highlight a few things in uh, our life to come in the weeks coming up for First Church. The first is to note that on the last Sunday of this month, save that date, we are hoping we will be able to have an outdoor celebration, but we're still gathering signatures to uh, see if we can shut down Chancellor Street so that we can have a luncheon outdoors at that day. If we're able to, we'll let you know, and we would love to see everyone there for uh, time to gather in the fresh air and be with one another in that way. I'd like to highlight that this upcoming Saturday at 1 p.m. will be the memorial service for Mary and George Schneider. Mary and George, of course, died over a year ago, but they are now having their memorial services. We are able to gather in that way. Beginning next Sunday, we will be in the midst of a five-week-long sermon series, and one of our congregation members has already pointed out to me, I've elected to preach on all the things we're not supposed to talk about in polite society, uh, money and sex and politics and, and all those good things, and that'll be a five-week-long sermon series. But the, the thing that's different about this is we are going to offer, offer the opportunity for a talkback from the congregation following the conclusion of each worship service. And so you can grab a cookie at coffee hour and have an opportunity to talk about what I have preached. You don't have to agree with everything I say, uh, but it's always good to be able to talk about these things. And so I invite you to take part in that. And we have designated a chief interrogator from the congregation for each day to get the conversations rolling. So I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. With all of these things noted, let us now continue our worship with our confession of sin. God knows us completely. God knows our heart and discerns our thoughts. Let us then confess what we carry within us that does not honor God or God's path of righteousness. Eternal God, we have not lived up to our calling. You have shown us your way. In Jesus Christ, you swept away the boundaries of sin and brokenness and invited us into fellowship. We have resolutely set our minds and our hands to rebuilding those barriers. We do not embrace the other. We believe our own righteousness and the sin of others to be insurmountable. We have not lived as though your grace is sufficient for all our needs. So forgive us, we pray. Forgive us and bring us to that place of childlike love and friendship to which you have called us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. May the God of mercy who forgives you all your sins strengthen you in all goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit 
keep you in eternal life. Believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of James in the second chapter. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, And if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, Have a seat here, please. While to the one who is poor you say, Stand there, or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith? and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love God? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme at the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, And one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill. And yet you do not supply their bodily needs. What good is that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Here ends our first reading. Our gospel lesson comes to us from the gospel according to Mark in the seventh chapter. It is a lesson of two stories. Because I will only be preaching on one of the stories, I will only read the first portion of the lesson. But in your bulletin, you will see the entire lesson for the day if you wish to read that at your leisure later. We'll read beginning at the 24th verse and concluding with the 30th. Listen, continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. From there he set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there, yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose daughter, little daughter, had an unclean spirit immediately immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. 
Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and indeed the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. At an easy glance, this story does not seem to be commensurate with the message of the gospel. Jesus' shameful treatment of this woman seems contrary to all that we have been taught about what it means to be a Christian. His healing ministry, along with his kingdom preaching, apparently really is reserved for only the few. To a casual glance, that is what this story looks like. And when I consider Mark's story of the Syrophoenician woman, I don't like the Jesus I meet there very much at all. I am not comfortable with just this Jesus. This Jesus is shocking. Perhaps this Jesus is disturbing. To a facile glance, it would appear that all that I have preached in my ministry is wrong, that others are right, and the gospel is meant to be exclusive. Perhaps there's a way to think of this story where what Jesus says to the Syrophoenician woman is somehow less offensive. The Greek term that Mark uses here is in a diminutive form, implying little dogs or maybe puppies. 
So maybe what Jesus said wasn't so offensive after all. I mean, really, who doesn't love a puppy? Whether you look at it through first century Jewish eyes, where a a dog was just one step up from a pig, or through Greek eyes, where a dog is a beloved, close house pet, they are still dogs. And even though we love our dogs, I mean, think of a beagle puppy. Who doesn't love a puppy? Even though we love our dogs, and I love my old hound dogs, they are still dogs. I would resent most any analogy between them and me. No, let's be very clear about this. The Syrophoenician woman had just been insulted. When I think of the offensiveness of the gospel, this is not what I had in mind. But calling her a dog is actually peripheral. Because what Jesus really said was that he would not help her. Now, she was in a situation of terrible difficulty. Her daughter was possessed by a demon. And put aside all of our 21st century notions of psychology, all we know about Freud and Jung, and and just think for a moment, realize for a moment how absolutely terrifying this demon possession must have been to this superstitious Syrophoenician woman. Jews and Greeks did not mix. And here she had screwed up all of her courage to ask Jesus for help, and he refused and called her a dog to hammer home the rejection. That's what it looks like. I would have gone home defeated. The room was buzzing with the idle chit-chat of people unwinding. She speaks, nothing new, just another nobody asking for a miracle. Maybe Jesus will help. It's been a long day, though. Maybe he won't. The buzz goes on. And Jesus replies. Some of the bystanders lean in to hear what he will say. No surprises there. We all know Gentiles are no good. Maybe she'll just go away. I don't know if she was courageous or at her wit's end, or maybe just plain sassy by nature. But she didn't go away. She didn't go home. She talked back. She said to Jesus, okay, you can call me a dog, I can take it, but how dare you refuse to help my daughter? Even the dogs under the table get better treatment than this. And like the sound of a tray dropping in a restaurant, her comment stopped conversation cold. Jesus, tired after a long day and perhaps even a bit conflicted over what it meant to be Messiah, thought he could put her off and finally get some rest by summarily dismissing her. And she tells him that if he thinks that is what is going to happen, he's got another thing coming. I mean, can't you just imagine the reaction of his disciples in this moment? 
Are you going to let that bit of Syrophoenician fluff talk to you like that? To you, Jesus? He's got some serious gall coming in here like that, just barging right on in, a woman and a Gentile. And here you put her off quietly with a little remark to remind her of her place, and she has the nerve to talk back to you? Now that is some sass. It's going to get good now. She is about to get a piece of Palestinian mind. But what the disciples don't understand, and what Jesus does, is that she has something at stake. She needed Jesus. She wasn't one of those followers who were there because it was the end thing to do at the time or because she wants to see the big show or because she got caught up in some sort of emotional high and is seeking to recapture the feeling. Actually, she's not a follower at all. The word faith, at least as we mean it, doesn't apply to her. She is here in this moment because she heard he might be able to help her daughter. And that is all she needed to hear to come running. She had probably already taken her Syrophoenician self to every snake oil salesman in town and perhaps a few out of town also. Jesus, for her, is just one more shot at a miracle that she desperately needs. Now, I don't have children, but I know folks will do things for your children that you won't do for anyone else, that you might even think twice about doing for yourself. You know, in the early years, you give up sleep for your children. Then one day, you find yourself at a car dealership trading your sports car for a minivan. Spontaneous travel is really, for the most part, over when you have children. You find yourself skipping the designer labels and shopping off the sale rack so that you can contribute a few more shekels to the college fund so they can go to the college that they want to. You do things for your children you might not do for anyone else. Sometimes you even give up your dignity. It's been a few years, but I remember vividly a scene from the movie Spencer's Mountain. It's one of those great old Americana-type pieces of filmmaking, you know, from a bygone era with Henry Fonda and Maureen O'Hara. Clay Spencer learns that his eldest son has been denied entrance to the university, and he takes it upon himself to speak to the dean to find out why. Spencer is an uneducated quarry worker, struggling to make ends meet while his children are young, and hoping one day to finish building his dream house up on his mountain that has been in his family for generations. As the scene unfolds, we learn that the only reason Spencer's son was denied entrance to the university was because he didn't have the necessary Greek requirement for ministry, which comes as a surprise to Spencer, who exclaims, Ministry? I'd sooner have him in jail than in a pulpit, but if that's what it takes, if he could get this Greek, would you take him? And the dean agrees, though he makes it clear there are no more scholarships to be had for the fall term. So Spencer goes home, and he does two things. First, 
after he humiliates himself seeking loans to raise the tuition money, he burns down the unfinished frame of the family's dream house so that he can sell his mountain to get the money for the tuition. And then second, he enters into what can only be described as an unholy alliance with the pastor of the local church to teach Greek to his son. The cost is that the devoutly non-church-going Spencer, who has spent 20 years teasing all of his neighbors as they headed off to church and he headed off to go fishing, has to start going to church himself. And the scene of Clay Spencer singing, Shall We Gather at the River?, would convince even the most hardened cynic that parents will do things for their children that they wouldn't even do for themselves. That's what this Syrophoenician woman is doing. She swallows her pride, foregoes her opportunity for righteous indignation so that her daughter might have a chance to be made well. And maybe that is what changed Jesus' mind. We already know that he could and would heal Gentiles. He healed a garrison demoniac just one chapter ago. Maybe he realized that she grasped the message of his, the meaning of his message more than anyone around him because she was doing what he was preaching. She was humbling herself for the benefit of another. She tolerated demeaning treatment for the good of her daughter. Maybe that is what he saw that changed his mind, because her devotion to her daughter's well-being was a slap in the face of the Jewish prejudice against Gentiles, because she was demonstrating that she loved another more than she loved herself. And anyone capable of this kind of self-sacrificing love is the kind of person that Jesus wants around. Surely, by now, Jesus must have been tired of all of the angling of his disciples, asking for spaces on his right and his left in the kingdom, and flat out missing the point of much of the kingdom preaching. And here she is demonstrating what he preaches, and suddenly it doesn't matter to her anymore that she is a woman and a Gentile. The silence thickens as folks sit on the edge of their seats to see whether he will dignify her with further debate or whether she has opened a can of worms she can't handle. Her heart is pounding in her temples. What did I just say? What will he do? She braces herself. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. He allows himself to lose face. He capitulates in front of the whole crowd, in front of all of his disciples, 
He allows himself to be humbled. He acknowledges that she is right and grants her request, go, for saying that your daughter is healed. They say you do things for your children you wouldn't do for anyone else, like humbling yourself so that your followers can see what real love looks like. Humbling yourself so they can see the kingdom that you've been preaching isn't a kingdom of prosperity or wealth, but a kingdom of self-sacrifice and self-giving love. Yes, they say you'll do things for your children you won't do for anyone else. After Spencer burns down the dream house, he tells his son that what he is doing for him, the son will then do for his younger sister, and she will do it for her younger brother, and so on down the line until all of his children have a shot at an education. And that's the gospel right there that we are to help our sisters and brothers and so on down the line until everyone has chance at having their needs met, maybe even their dreams met, because that's what Jesus did for us. And this dear old world has such a way to go. There are plenty of ways to reimpose the boundaries that Jesus died to sweep away. We have we're haves and have-nots. We're wealthy and impoverished. We are welcomed and unwelcomed. Every time we hear the story of someone being told they don't belong somewhere because of their language or the tone of their skin, or whose hand they want to hold in the most important moments of life. It's rebuilding a wall whose only purpose is to divide us and that Jesus died to tear down. So with this story, Mark is telling us to get off our blessed assurances, get up, send our comfort zones and barriers straight to the hell they create, and start being like this norm-busting, barrier-breaking, Syrophoenician woman, willing to pursue Jesus with abandoned dignity, be tossed, loving with such a tenacity that we ourselves are then like Jesus, healing and binding up the world. Years ago, I had the privilege of hearing Edwina Gately, an English Catholic laywoman, speak about her ministry to the prostitutes of Chicago. And to say that she was an unlikely advocate is an understatement. Gately spent years obliterating boundaries, becoming the first woman in mission in Africa for the Catholic Church, attending a Catholic seminary as a woman, and now she felt called to go to Chicago 
to work with women that were nothing like her. And she thought to herself, I am an English Catholic laywoman. I have a degree in theology. Surely, God, you have confused me with someone else, someone who has more in common with these women. But God had always called her to barrier-breaking ministries, and so she went. And when she got there, she waited, and she watched to see what would be needed. She said at first the women were territorial, but then they became ambivalent as it became clear she was not competition. So after a time of, of simply being there in the community, she began to reach out. Hello, I am an English Catholic laywoman. Let's just say it wasn't the best opening line, but gradually word got out that her halfway house, Genesis house, would distribute contraceptives and clean needles. And for a while, that was all she was able to do. But then one night, a young woman stopped into the house. She had been beaten up, and she wanted a way out, and she needed a safe place to stay that night. And in time, more women came to see the way out. Gately recounts having been threatened, beaten up, and threatened yet again. The Catholic Church consistently disavowed her work as long as she continued to distribute contraceptives. But the funny, funny thing about ministry is that God isn't interested in our boundaries. God isn't interested in what makes us comfortable or uncomfortable. So God blessed her boundary-breaking ministry. In the late 90s, over 2,000 women a year came through the doors of Genesis House, her house of new beginnings. And they didn't always seek a way out, but they received contraceptives and information about HIV, a hot meal, and saw the gospel in action. Gately has spoken about what she sees when the women think that no one is looking. She said these hardened women look exhausted and beaten. And you can see in their eyes that they were told they were nothing for so long that they finally just agreed. That they have lived a life that has been shut out, forced onto the wrong side of a boundary that assumes that, oh, those men, in, innocent men were just walking down the sidewalk at 4 a.m. and the, happened to blunder into the wrong section of town where they found these evil women. They're on a the wrong side of the boundary that says, you know, if we just give out contraceptives and clean needles, we're only encouraging your behavior. If you get sick, well, you know what? That's just the consequences of your actions. And these are the same boundaries that get put up all the time, just using different words for different people. Boundaries that are well familiar to LGBTQ folks, to persons of color, and on and on. But the kingdom of God isn't anyone's to fence. Jesus sweeps away all of the boundaries in this moment, in the moment of sharing his healing ministry with a woman who was clearly an outsider. He shares his love with a woman of origins with whom he wasn't supposed to associate as a good Jewish man. 
She wasn't even a believer. But Jesus listened to her. Jesus listened to her. And he allowed his ministry to be shaped by her. And we must do the same. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
us together confess what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. We have more to offer than we recognize or realize. God has given us abundant gifts. Let us faithfully respond to our generous God.
God of mercy, the earth groans as wildfires rage, hurricanes destroy, and our climate continues to warm and change. We are weary of disaster, God. We are tense from concern and fear. We feel helpless as we watch or hear each day's news. Hear us, O God, as we share ourselves, our prayers, our hopes with you. Bless us, O God, with a reverent sense of your presence as we lift these petitions to you. We pray for students newly returned to school or newly starting school. We pray for their curiosity, imagination, and intellect to bloom. We pray that they persevere through every new challenge, that they take advantage of their education, that they work hard to develop their emerging skills. We pray also for parents and teachers still navigating the change and pressures brought on by the pandemic. Bless these, we pray, with your wisdom and grace. We pray for our nation and our nation's leaders. In this time of national turmoil, come near, holy God, to both judge and save. When we turn from your way, help us repent and return. May our leaders be led by your wisdom. May they clearly discern your will and seek to follow it. We pray for the suffering all across our globe. We pray for peace to reign in Afghanistan, for the Afghani people to enjoy the freedom and dignity they deserve. We pray for mercy for the people of Haiti, for respite from their endless woes, for prosperity for a country desperate to make their way. We pray for all those who must endure violence, destruction, and abuse. Save us, God, from sectarian thinking that leads us to believe our problems are not, others' problems are not our own. Remind us of our interconnectedness, that the suffering of some is the suffering of us all. Mighty and merciful God, we praise you for sending healing and hope through doctors and nurses and researchers who bless us with new science and technology to serve and save. We claim your promise of wholeness for all who suffer. We glorify you for your constant presence, help, and hope. May your world and all who live in it be renewed through the power of the risen Christ and those committed to being Christ's hands and feet in a hurting world. United as a family of faith and as the body of Christ, we lift these prayers up to you, God, our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Hear these prayers along with the prayer that Christ taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
one of the things I love about Mark's gospel narrative is he loves to make messes that then force us to clean them up, figure out what's going on. But the fascinating thing about Mark is that it is almost always some unknown, unnamed character who helps to bring the resolution. Uh, so much so that one professor called them little people in Mark's gospel narrative. And they bring the resolution. They, they show us the way to the kingdom of God. And that's our charge, to be those people, to show the way and to bring to resolution the kingdom of God. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen.